I'm Roberto, professional golfer and aspiring business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode of the Course Record Show is brought to you by Holderness and Born. When it comes to any clothing, fit is a complicated thing. But when you have to not only look good, but be able to wear that clothing in all types of weather and swing a golf club comfortably, fit is even more essential. H&B has absolutely nailed the fit. Their approach is tailored, but not tight. When I first started wearing H&B, some of my buddies on the XL side of the size spectrum were skeptical. They were like, yeah, it looks great on you, but no way I'm wearing anything tailored fit. But after convincing them to give it a try, they've all made the switch to H&B. The fit loosens up as you get towards large, extra large, and on up, but still maintains a sharp look. The sleeves aren't past your elbow. There's not a bunch of fabric bunched around the shoulder. It's just a more polished look across all sizes. Check out the new spring styles and the perennial favorites like the Maxwell shirt on hbgolf.com. So Roberto, I have to admit, I have a bunch of questions that I've always wanted to ask you and never did in all the time we've, we've hung out. I know these are questions that our listeners have too. It's all about how tour players spend money. So first thing I want to know, where does most of your money go as a tour player in terms of your expenses throughout the year? That's a good question. First, I want to apologize to the listeners for not having a great guest on this week. It's a bit of a downgrade to just have me on, but uh, no, I think it's, I think it's a good conversation to have just because I've played in a hundred pro-ams, probably more, and you get a lot of the same questions. And I think that's one of the cool things that amateurs get during a day like that is, is just kind of getting to pick the brains of, of just the day-to-day stuff. So, I mean, expenses, I think it's like any business, it goes towards people. You know, if you have a good year on tour, it means you're paying your caddy more means you're paying your coach more. You might have, you know, the better you play, the higher you get in the world rankings, like your payroll just inevitably goes up. So some coaches are compensated on percentage of official earnings. So if that's the case and you peel off a $5 million a year and you're paying two or 3%, your expenses at the end of the year are going to go, you know, seven to 10% to the caddy and 3% to the to the coach, you're 10% right off the top. It's 500 grand right there. So that's, that's the biggest one. So it sounds like most of the biggest expenses that you have are variable, right? You want to pay more because that means you're making more. What yeah, about expenses right. that are more fixed? Like, well, you know, like regardless of how much you earn, more you earn, you still got to pay to travel. You still got to pay to do all this stuff. What are some of the big fixed expenses that you want to be able to clear? Yeah. When you look at it at the end of the year, it's kind of more instructive than week to week because you might have a buddy in at Pebble Beach that you stay with and the hotel that week is zero, or you might be playing at a place where there's just no options and you're kind of spending big ticket for a hotel. But it's funny at the end of the year, I was always surprised how little I spent on airfare. So I fly commercial, live in Atlanta, always Delta. And even like the years I was like just booking first class tickets. It's crazy. You end up spending like 20 grand, 25 grand for the whole year on plane tickets, which is surprising, but 
you know, like we talked about with Joe, how spoiled tour players are. You can get from the Florida events driving. If you're playing West Coast swing, like sure, it's a big ticket to Hawaii, but then you can go San Diego, Palm Springs, Phoenix on either driving or a $100 connector flight. So airline tickets always surprised me that it wasn't that bad. The better you play, the more you spend on hotels, I think, because you just going to the tour follows good weather. So you're always playing everywhere high season. So there's just no more, you know, on the corn Ferry tour, you can find a nice Hampton Inn for 120 bucks. Those, those options go out the window on tour. You're playing at like the Honda classic February in Palm beach gardens. Every hotel is, you know, 300 bucks a night, not even the nice ones. So LA, San Diego, similar situations. So I would say hotels, airfare, and coaching, you know, that's, those are kind of your big fixed cost. If you sign a trainer or a coach day one, there's a retainer plus percentage. So that's how you wake up January 1st and you've spent six figures on expenses before you've hit a shot. So Roberto, what about on a weekly basis? Talk me through like where you incur the most cost. Like where does it go? Well, let's just say I live in Atlanta. I'm playing a tour event in Chicago. So you're in for 500 bucks on the flight. Could be a thousand if you're playing farther away or if you're booking a last minute ticket or small markets have more expensive. So 500 to a thousand for the flight. Hotels a a thousand to, you know, 3000. If you're staying in a nice hotel in a big city, you know, it could be four or 500 bucks a night or 300 bucks a night. You're there for six nights. Caddy is, when I got on the corn ferry, it was like 800 to a thousand. Now on tour, it's 1800 to 2000, let's say. So let's call it 2000. So 500 for the flight, 1500 for the hotel, 2000 for the caddy. So now you're at 4000. And that's before you've, you know, really had a bite to eat. You're going to spend another thousand on food. Again, the tour plays in real cities. Like you can always go to Chipotle and have a $9 dinner. But if you go to any sort of dinner, a lot of guys travel with their wives. You know, you have a glass of wine and dinner, 150 bucks. So you're in for 5,000 bucks a week, pretty handily. So you mentioned part of that being the caddy payout. I'm assuming that's the, what you pay, even if you miss the cut and get nothing out of it. That's a good question. So caddies get paid a weekly stipend and then they get paid percentage. So traditionally it was 5% of any check, 7% of a top 10 and 10% of a win. And that's, I think some guys do it different, but that's kind of the old standby five, seven, 10. Now it might be just seven and 10 for a lot of guys or eight and 10. But that's one I'm always curious about. Like I listened to Spieth on the No Laying Up podcast. And he said, you know, some guys assume that like these kind of famous caddies for famous players, like Stevie must have been on a salary or this or that. Caddies got into the business like players, like kind of eat what you kill. And it was interesting. Spieth said, he was like, you know, those couple of years I didn't play so well. I just feel for Michael because like he's got a, he's starting a family and we'd had such great years and like his income was very different. So he basically just said like, look, Michael's probably on a great stipend, but most of his income is coming off that percentage. So I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. Cause you know, people are always like, oh, I'm sure Tiger just gives Stevie a million a year or bones a million. I don't think so. I think those guys, they want to catch the upside and they want to catch, they realize the downside of their business. I don't know. Yeah. So Stevie Bones, if you're listening, 
come on the show anytime. We can confirm that or deny that. I don't think uh, Stevie would mind throwing a little dirt on Tiger after watching him on the documentary. That was the most surprising thing about that entire Tiger HBO show was that he and Stevie don't talk. That was such a bummer. Such a huge bummer. What expenses are covered by someone other than other than you? Are you on the hook for everything? Or do you split this with like a sponsor or anything like that? 100% on the hook. Um, you know, that's, I thought that was one of the interesting parts of the Joe Ogilvy conversation was Joe said that he always, when he was on the board and talking to Fincham, he always felt that when you got your PGA Tour card, if you were quote unquote guaranteed a couple hundred thousand dollars in endorsement income that a stipend or some sort of retainer from the tour was not necessary. And he felt that if that ever went away, that maybe that that should be a conversation. And I think it's really interesting, especially in light of this PIP program, right? The tour just decided to basically give the top 10 guys a big bonus. When on the flip side, Endorsement money has come down from those levels Joe was talking about. I think if you're just a rookie on the tour and look, you got guys who are like total capitalists playing pro golf. Like it's an eat what you kill. Nobody's looking for a handout. I mean, if you got into this business, you knew what you were getting into, but at the end of the day, there's only one way to get on the PGA tour and that's to earn your card. So if you want to talk about like a stipend for getting on the tour, I don't see it as a handout. Like you've earned, there's 125 guys or whatever, plus the new guys. So 175 guys on the PGA tour that all earn their spot. So if you were going to say like, Hey, if you earn your card, you get 150 grand that can cover your expenses for the year. I wouldn't have a problem with that. I'm not necessarily advocating for it, but look, you can, you can kind of break even on the corn Ferry tour and get your card if you play well in the finals. So if you come out of college, you get on the corn Ferry, you break even and you go peel off 30, 40 grand in expenses. The first 10 tournaments, especially when we started Hawaii West coast, pretty expensive trips. You could have a guy who has a PGA tour card. If he doesn't play well in those events and he's like looking, he's cash poor, you know, like cash flow becomes a problem for that guy. And that's a real thing. Maybe it's one, two, three, but it's probably closer to one to five guys every year that run into this problem. So it's kind of an interesting, nuanced, kind of deep dive thought. But I think it's a conversation that's going to come up over the next five to 10 years, maybe. How high do you have to finish in the Corn Ferry Tour money list to break even there? I mean, you can finish 75th on the Corn Ferry Tour money list and get into the finals. And at 75th, you're making like, I don't know, 80 grand and you're spending 80 grand for sure. So you've broke even for the year. So you've got zero in your bank account. If you started with zero and if you play well in those corn Ferry tour finals, you can get your card with one good week. So like $30,000 will get your card in those finals. So you're now up 30 grand or 35 grand and you're starting PGA tour season with that much money. Now, again, there's endorsements. So you're going to get a little bit coming in, whether you kind of get off to a slow start or not, but just for example, you can get your card and not have a bunch of cash in the bank. But it sounds like you can't be a lifer on the corn theory tour and expect to make any kind of money. hundred percent. And that, 
that is something that the tour has been pretty adamant about is like, that's not really a place to spend your career. And I agree with that. And if you look at the announcement recently that the, the corn Ferry tour is going to go to a million a week and the finals are going to be 1.5 million of those three finals tournaments, it's actually really good. And it's a good way for the tour to like head off this conversation about a stipend or, you know, the conversation we just had, because now if you finish in the top 25 on the corn Ferry tour, even if you have a couple good weeks in that finals deal to, to earn your card, you're going to start with more money. You're just making more money now on the corn Ferry tour, which gives you, you're starting with a bigger bankroll on the PGA tour. And that's good. That's really great. So I think that's a really good development. It's long overdue. And I'm, uh, I'm supportive of that big time. You mentioned the player incentive program or the PIP. For, for those who don't know much about it, give us the 101 on how you experience the PIP, what it means for a player like you. It means nothing for a player like me. <laughs> I don't, I can give the 101, but I haven't really looked at the details that closely, but it's basically a pot of money, $40 million the first year, which is 2021. And I think it's going to 60 in the next year or two. And it's basically awarded to the top 10 guys on the PGA Tour based on a on a ranking that is a combination of how much social media influence you have or followers or curating and marketability. And there's like six factors and there's some formula. So it's basically just how famous you are. It's uh, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Those 10 guys are the guys that are moving the needle. The sport is driven by stars and the one thing I think is interesting though, like it took me like a week to think about is, is it a way to reward those top 10 players or is it a way for the tour to incentivize their players to create more content? So like if I'm the 15th ranked player in the world and finish 12th in that deal, should I like start tweeting more? Should I hire somebody to run my social media? Should I be pounding content out all the time so I can move up in that ranking? So, you know, I think it could work both ways for the tour, which is really smart. Isn't that what we're doing here? Putting out content, getting in the pit money. I mean, how many listeners do we need for my play to be overcome by uh, <laughs> podcasting fame to get, me some, to get me some of that? I would love to find out. <laughs> So what behaviors do you think the PIP is going to change for players? Like what would you do differently if you're on the cusp of being in that top 10 to get into the money? That, that's a good question. I think it's worth thinking about too. Like take it one step further than we just did. Oh, our guy's going to tweet more. That's simple. That's basic. But let's just pick a guy. Okay. Justin Thomas is the first or second, third best player in the world. Like phenomenal. Let's say, we don't know how this thing's going to shake out. Let's say year one, he finishes eighth in the PIP because you've got Tiger Woods, you've got Phil Mickelson, you've got maybe a Ricky Fowler is ahead of Justin Thomas in the PIP. So would JT tweet more or would he sit down with his team and say, hey, let's talk to HBO about a six-part documentary show. Let's not just tweeting more, but like really taking something on like that where just think about the Formula One show. I know dozens of people who never watched Formula One and now watch because the quality of that documentary, Drive to Survive on Netflix. 
what if a player did that that was already a great player and jumped to the top of the pip? I mean, it's $10 million in year one, I think, for the number one guy. And if it if they're going to take it from 40 to 60, you know, that's going to be $15 million. So it's, it could be really interesting. You know, what do you think? I think it is interesting. I mean, there's clearly with so much going on in terms of like cancel culture and how hard it is to get exposed in the media these days. I wonder if that will, this will be enough to really break that down or if the players will go, I don't know, like the downside is still really big. I love the payout here, but I might expose myself to a lot if I try too hard here. Does that make any sense? It does make sense, but you're just thinking about the payout. What about the ego? Guys like being famous. They like being stars. If I'm the second just XYZ player, a guy we've never heard of two years from now, becomes the third ranked player in the world and he's 24th on the pip, guys don't like being told they're the 24th most famous person on the tour when they're the third best player. So I think it could be driven by ego as much as money. That makes sense. But why wouldn't he just do that now? Because there's no scoreboard now and the pip puts a scoreboard to it. That's why. Interesting. Winners like winning. That is that's an interesting take. The ego as a currency in this, I you're right, um, is a fascinating component to this that I absolutely did not factor in. Yeah, it's a it's a real thing. All right, so you talk about players making a run for the tour because that's where the golden goose is. Um, talk about how players set up fundraising to make a run at the tour to get you know from a. Canada or Latin America tour into Corn Ferry and hopefully ultimately into the PGA tour. How do they set up fundraising to give it a go? Oh, so you want to go back to the, you want to go back to the beginning, the bottom, the, the bottom, get start from the bottom. Now we're here. Let's start from the bottom. Um, you know, generally the top five or 10 guys, maybe five guys coming out of college will get some endorsement money to go on their way and, and fund their professional golf and then obviously if your family has some cash, they can help you get started. But a lot of guys, you know, I was a four-time All-American in college and I had to go raise money. And I tried to raise enough to play for one year where I could miss every single cut, have zero income and play for 12 months and do it right. So, you know, staying in decent hotels, flying to some Monday qualifiers, playing a lot of mini tour events. Many tours have kind of been replaced by Latin America and Canadian tour, but I was super fortunate in that I had guys that just wanted to help me get started. Um, so I was lucky in that regard. And those guys were, I mean, I would not have been able to do what I did without their support. But as you mentioned, some guys go and basically sell shares in themselves. They say, Hey, pitch in, you know, buy 10% of my company or of me and that'll cover my expenses. And if I get to the PGA tour, I will pay you back plus a percentage or you'll get a percentage of my earnings. So, you know, Hey, I might be on Latin America tour this year, but if you pitch in now, when I get on the tour, anything I make over a million bucks, you get 25% of, or there's all kinds of ways to do these deals. And, and those are fairly common. I think most investors there go into it knowing that they're just trying to help a guy chase his dream. And if they see a dollar, they see a dollar, but they're not expecting a return most of the time, but, but some do get a return. Do you know anyone who is still paying a bunch of money back to someone who believed in them 
like that 10% earnings in perpetuity kind of thing. It's like, ooh, maybe I should have uh, offered less. Yeah, I have heard of that. And I think there's just two sides to that coin. If you're sitting there with $0 in the bank and you think you can do this and you have that dream and believe in yourself, you need that money. So what's the worst possible scenario? You never get to chase that dream or you get on tour and you're paying a big royalty. You know, there's probably a limit to where you flip from being grateful to being like, wow, this was a bad deal. But do you get the right off your expenses for tax purposes? You know, it is May after all, and the deadline's coming up. Uh, um, who's listening to this? <laughs> yeah, you get to write off, um, you know, just kind of the all the travel, hotels, coaching. You 1099 your coach, 1099 your caddy. So you can write off a bunch of stuff, but within reason, right? You can't, if you take your family to Disney World for a week and hit balls for 30 minutes, you can't write off that trip to Disney World. I mean, you can, it's just when you get audited, you're going to have to explain that trip to Disney World. So everyone knows that game, right? You don't want that call. You don't want that call. Exactly. What about the PGA Tour pension? How does it work? What does it take to get in the, uh, in the game, so to speak, for that? That's a good question. Actually, one that I get a lot and people are really interested to know about. Uh, the pension for me has two parts. So the FedEx Cup and then the cuts plan. The FedEx Cup is really simple. If you finish in the top 150 on the FedEx Cup, the tour makes a contribution to your FedEx Cup account. It's deferred comp, so it's not really pension. But on the FedEx Cup, it's vested on year one. So that money, it goes in. And if you only play one year on tour and you finish 50th, they'll dump 100 grand in your FedEx account. And that comp will come to you between age 45 and 50 if you've stopped playing. Or if you're still playing, I think you can push it all the way to 55 and it pays out over five years. So that's great. And then the second is the PGA Tour cuts plan where you get a contribution. Again, it's not a pension, it's deferred comp. You get a contribution for every cut made. But to vest that money to get it, you have to play five years on the PGA Tour without a five-year break. I think it's 15 events for five years. And then once you do that, all that cuts money becomes vested. And that, I think, pays out from like 60, 60 to 70 or something like that. So as a former consultant, I'm always fascinated by travel and how other people who travel figure out their own system to travel. So you talked about some of the expenses related to travel, but talking about how the, the operations go. Um, were, you, were you like George Clooney in that Up in the Air movie where he has like all the frequent, was that you? Kind of. I mean, I fired fewer people than he did, um, <laughs> but I did, but I absolutely did profiling on which security line I was going to get into to go through the fastest. That was definitely me. What about points? Are you like obsessed with points or not? I'm off that drug now, but I was. It's easy to get caught up in that. I mean, you, you, it's like another form of compensation that you start chasing and you think you've made it because you're double platinum or whatever, but you're just kind of, you know, <laughs> you're just kind of burying yourself deeper and deeper in the hole. But yeah, it, it, they get you with it. No question. No doubt. I think anyone who's traveled, and maybe some people don't, those are the real lifers. But when I was younger, I would you know, be boarding a plane behind a guy with a diamond tag on his backpack. And I'm like, 
what a what a legend you know like what a hero this guy is an absolute winner and then at, i don't know if it's when you get married or when you have kids or when you've just been on too many flights i don't know what the answer to that is and maybe some people don't get there but at some point you're on that thing and you see that guy with the diamond tag and you're like poor bastard <laughs> you know what i mean did you have that moment yeah, yeah i definitely did and the, the bag tag I never got, I never understood what that was a medal for that you wanted to symbolize, but you know, it is what it is. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But as far as travel, I have always done it myself. I mean, I, I mean, if you can use the internet, you can book a Delta flight, right? Um, hotels can be a little dicier, especially if you're going through the tournament or whatnot, but some of the agencies have like a person who, just does travel. So you just text that person all the time and they book your flights, book your hotels, change your flights, change because it's kind of a moving target all the time. So I've pretty much always done it myself. My wife helped, uh, especially on the hotel front when she was traveling a bunch because I'll, I'll kind of stay anywhere. And I was like, you pick, you know, whatever looks better to you, but it's, it's not that complicated. I have to imagine you've done it. You've racked up a lot in change fees. Uh, what do you think you've racked up in change fees given the uncertainty of like making a cut, not making a cut, et cetera, and all the uncertainty that comes in your world? Oh, thousands of dollars. I mean, if I had spent 20,000 a year on airline tickets, I would have spent 5,000 on change fees for sure. Or just burn tickets or flights you never use because it's more expensive to change and just buy a new one. Because like you said, like, it's just, it's easy to just think you can be like, okay, I fly Monday afternoon and then I either make the cut or miss it. It's not that simple. Like, you know, you're like, oh man, I'm going to buy my flight for Dallas in two months. It's 300 bucks. It's a good deal. And then you get a text like the next day or the next week. That's like, Hey, there's a charity event in town on Monday. Can you play this thing the week of Dallas? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. So now I don't have, I just lost my deal. I've got to go buy a new flight and my $300 flight turned into an $800 flight. It's just constantly changes and change fees. So you're welcome, Delta shareholders. So in consulting, it's, it's a very common, like first flight out on Monday to get out, late flight on Thursday to get back, right? Work Friday in your home office. What's the PGA Tour Pro version of the weekly schedule going in and out of a tour city? I kind of had two. The first couple of years on tour, I would travel Monday, just kind of take it easy, Casual travel day, avoid the Monday morning rush at the airport, get in in the afternoon, and then full day practice around Tuesday because I didn't know the golf courses. And then if I was going week to week, I'd, I'd like to fly Sunday night, preferably, because then I could just have a total chill day on Monday. But once you kind of get to know the golf courses or you have kids at home, tons of guys fly Tuesday morning because you can get there by lunchtime, play a practice round in the afternoon. And you already know the course, so you might play nine holes or you're frequently in the Pro-Am on Wednesday. So you can get in Tuesday afternoon, hit a few balls, kind of get settled, and then you use the Pro-Am as your, as your practice round. So I would say that's the most common. I would say the rookies, 80% of the rookies are traveling on Mondays and 80% of the established guys are traveling on Tuesdays. Are there any courses that even though you've played before are tricky enough that you still have to go out on Monday or Sunday to try to figure out more going into a, into a tournament or not necessarily? Not necessarily. I mean, I maybe should have done that on courses. I'd miss the cut every year. I should like move to Harbortown for a, you know, a month before that tournament. Cause I've never made a check there. 
All right. You survived all my questions, Roberto. <laughs> Thanks for dishing out some secrets on the pocketbook of a PGA Tour Pro. Lots of good questions here. Lots of good insights that uh, I think gives our listeners a much better picture of what's going on in the uh, finances of the tour. Happy to do it. I know it's uh, kind of a weird way to make a living. So happy to give some insights on on how it works behind the scenes. But I promise the listeners we will have real live, more interesting guests on future shows. So check back in on the Course Record Show.